Our Father in heaven, we pray right now that you will, by the, by the Holy Spirit, bring illumination. You would shine light into our hearts, into our minds, that we can see more deeply into the reality that your Son is our shepherd. That your Son is our provider, protector, Savior, Rescuer. That He loves us and that He has all power and ability to see us through to the very end. And so Lord, help us right now. We need Your help. And Lord, would You maybe even give some in this congregation spiritual eyes to see Jesus Christ for the very first time for who He is that He may call their name out, that they will hear His voice and come to Him. We pray it in His name. Amen. So in almost uh, every church service that you'll ever go in, there are two kinds of people in attendance. Those who know Jesus as their good shepherd, and those who don't. Those who have eternal life, and those who don't. Those who lay their head down on the pillow at night, resting in the Savior's love, and those who go to bed every night, not. Those are the two kinds of people that are in practically every single church service. And I want you to know that the primary goal of this message this morning is to give believers an unwavering confidence in the fact that Jesus is your good shepherd who will never, ever, ever let you go. If you're asking the question sometimes, what does Ryan think about when he's preparing a sermon? I want you to know that like this week is I want every Christian in this building to leave knowing that not only Christ loves you, but He's going to protect you and He's going to see you through to the very end. Now my secondary goal is for all non-Christians to hear the voice of the shepherd call your name and you follow him and you become part of his fold today. Those are the goals. And I want to start by reading a statement that I read off of a, a local church, not here in the area, but just a local church made about the nature of faith and Christ and how Christ sees people through to the end. So this is a great statement. It's a bit long, so hang in here, but this is so important for us to kind of frame John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30. We believe that all of those who are truly united to Christ in saving faith will persevere in faith and holiness to the end. This perseverance is due not to the strength of their will or to the tenacity of their faith, but to the power and grace of God working in them. Those who fall away and perish in their sins give evidence that a regenerating work of grace has never taken place in their hearts. We do not deny that true believers will fall into grievous outward sin and even continue in it for a time. But we do deny that true believers can fully and finally fall away from a state of grace and become apostate. 
Let me, let me shorten that up for you. What, what, what that church is saying is that if you have been born again from above, then you will endure to the end. Not because you have great faith, but because you have a great Savior and a good shepherd whom your faith is in. Now with that reality, let's turn to John chapter 10 and let's read verses 22 through 30. Obviously coming off the heels of verses 1 through 21 where last week we saw that Jesus is the good shepherd, that we are helpless, endangered sheep in need of rescue and Jesus is the door for our salvation and the shepherd who leads us there. He comes to us. He calls us by name. He he leads us out and He lays His life down for us to give us abundant life. That's what we saw last week as Jesus spoke to the Jewish leaders, the disciples that were around Him, and even the man who had been born blind and was made to see by Jesus. (coughs) So, (coughs) let's read verses 22 through 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What we see in the text is really, it unfolds kind of in in three ways. We see a pious scene, a provocative question, and a pastoral answer. Okay? A pious scene, a provocative question, and a pastoral answer. And I call it a pious scene. I look at the word pious, it means showing a dutiful spirit of reverence for God or an earnest wish to fulfill a religious obligation. Now check this. Then it says, or, or characterized by hypocritical concern with virtue or religious devotion. Which I thought that totally captures what's going on in this scene. There are people who are being earnest to fulfill some religious obligations. And at the same time, there are these hypocritical religious people who are trying to do religious things to make themselves look good before others. So it is a pious scene. So let's just look at this in verses 22, 23, and 24. It's the the time of the Feast of Dedication. This is a different time than what we just saw in verses 1 through 21. What we saw in 1 through 21 was probably happening in October. About two months have transpired now, and it's in December, mid to late December, at the Feast of Dedication. And if you go back and look in the Old Testament and read about the Feast of Dedication. It will not take you very long 
Because there's nothing that's ever said about the Feast of Dedication in the Old Testament. Why? Because it didn't exist in the Old Testament. The Feast of Dedication was actually inaugurated during about 160, 165 B.C. because it was in this intertestamental period. The last stroke of the Old Testament had been penned. It would be another three, 400 years before the New Testament and the New Covenant starts with the revelation of Jesus. And in that time... A Seleucid, uh, Antiochus of, of Epiphanes, who was a, a Syrian leader, comes in and just ransacks Jerusalem. And he was a big believer in, in the Greek mythology and so forth. And so he wipes everything out of the table and he sets up a statue of Zeus, of Greek mythology, and he makes the Jewish people worship Zeus, to bow down before him, to worship him, to carry around little trinkets that say they worshiped him. And the people of Israel hated it. They rebelled against it until finally Judas Maccabeus and, and his whole family said, we're going to lead a revolt. We are not going to be idolaters. And so they went up against these, this leader and all of his army and they successfully defeated him and them and they set up worship again in the temple to their God. And as soon as they did that, they established a feast, and they called it the Feast of Dedication. We are dedicating this place and this worship to our God again. Now, you'll find this interesting, but that Feast of Dedication morphed into called the Feast of Lights, which then morphed into a celebration called Hanukkah, which Jews celebrate to this very day. Okay, Now, that's the Feast of Dedication that they're at, and it's in Jerusalem, which is their home turf, it is in the temple, which is their really home turf, and it's in Solomon's colonnade, which is simply like a large awning with columns holding it up on the east side of the temple. And, and John tells us that it was winter. You know what's interesting about John? There's so many nuances that oftentimes he'll tell us the conditions or he'll tell us the time in order to give us an insight into the spiritual temperature of a people or a place. When did Nicodemus come to Jesus? By night. Well, because Nicodemus lived in spiritual darkness. Well, here he tells us that it's winter to let us know that the spiritual temperature in the temple is cold because there is no warm heart toward the true God. But that is the pious scene that he paints for us. Now let's look at the provocative question that they asked. It says, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, I need you to know that that phrase gathered around is not nearly as mute as it may sound, not nearly as dull. It means that they encircled him. It means that they strategically came around him to his left, right directly in front of him and to his right. They they are surrounding this Jesus, this man of Nazareth, in order to corner him in at their home field. This is like the opposing team coming in and the crowd is loud, the crowd is big, the crowd is hostile, and there is like no way that the opposing team is going to be able to win this game. That's the nature, that's the scene right now that John is painting for us that Jesus is in. And this is the provocative question that they ask. How long will you keep us in suspense? 
When they say that, that, that literally means how long will you cause our souls to rise up? How long will you call our souls to rise up? Like, we are on pins and needles here. How long are you going to make that last for us? And so we want you right now to tell us plainly if you are the Christ. Now, I want to read a comment by the late R.C. Sproul, who was saying something about this, because they're saying, hey, just tell us right now. Say you're the Messiah. Just say it if you are. Or if you're not, just tell us. Listen to what this pastor says. He says, you know, the public didn't understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. The popular view was that the Messiah would come as a warrior and drive the hated Romans out of the land. But Jesus understood that the office of Messiah was merged. Check this, you Bible study students right here. The office of Messiah was merged in the Old Testament with the office of the servant of the Lord of whom Isaiah writes later in his book, the one who is called the suffering servant of Israel. And so this is the thing, is the people had no concept of a Messiah who would suffer and die. And so Jesus was very guarded about the use of the title Messiah, particularly as the cross, as Calvary drew near. In other words, church, we, many of you, we, we understand this, But if he just went around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, they would get the totally wrong picture about what he was supposed to fulfill. So he has to use language and be careful about who he says to what, uh, to who. Second time we've had a slip today. What he says to who. Okay, all right, so here we go. We've got the pious scene and a provocative question. They want him out. They're tired of him. They can't stand him. They're jealous of him. He's disrupting their false religion. He's disrupting their puffed up prideful religion. And so now they're strategizing on how they can get him out. And they think we've got him cornered. We can certainly get him now. And this is where we get to the meat of the passage. We see the pastoral answer that he gives. And we first see in his pastoral answer a rebuke to these people. They say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And he says, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Listen, it's very important that we understand that Jesus has been making a bold and clear statement about His identity every single day of His ministry. We've read it from John 1 all the way now to John 10. Like, we read in John 1 that Jesus has omniscient knowledge of Nathaniel's physical location and His personal attributes. Like, Before you came, I saw you underneath a fig tree, and you are a man who is of good repute. They never even met before. And then we see that Jesus is at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and his mother compels him and says, do something about this. And Jesus takes those gallons and gallons and gallons of water and miraculously turns them into wine. Jesus ultimately goes into the temple 
for one of the first times and he looks at all of the selling of the wares and people get, getting over on other people by exorbitant prices selling doves and pigeons and sheep right inside the temple and Jesus just clears it out and nobody does anything to him. Jesus conducts a Samaritan revival when he's right there by Jacob's well and she says, sir, give me some of that living water. And he does. And then she goes back and she brings other Samaritans, the hated people, back with her and he saves them as well. He heals an official's son, not by going to the son and placing his hands on him, but the official comes and says, come with me. You can heal my son. I believe you can. He says, just go back. He's going to be fine. And he heals that boy from a long distance away. He goes on and he performs miracles after miracle after miracle, and some of them on the Sabbath. <clears throat> he actually declares that there is a resurrection and that the only way that people will be resurrected from the dead is through his very voice. His voice. He connects himself to Moses' prophecy when Moses said, there's going to become one who comes after me, a prophet who is greater than me. And Jesus says, I am him. I'm him. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then he says, I'm the bread of life. And in the midst of that, he takes two fish and five loaves, and there are 5,000 men, no telling how many other women and children, and he feeds every single one of them. And then after that, his disciples take off in a boat. There's a storm, and they're miles out in the sea, and this Jesus of Nazareth literally walks on top of choppy water in order to get to his disciples. Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah. He says, before Abraham was, what church? I am. He, um, he escaped miraculously the Jews who tried to stone him after he made that great statement. And then he goes and he heals the man who was born blind. He declares himself to be the great son of man that was predicted and prophesied about in the book of Daniel. And Jesus himself says, I'm the son of man. I am the king. And then he says, I'm the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Church, and especially you who have not come all the way to Christ, you need to know that Jesus could not be any clearer or bolder about who He is and where He has come from. He has been telling us plainly for the entirety of His ministry. He has demonstrated that He is the Christ. He has declared that He is the Christ. John the Baptist has testified that He is the Christ. How much clearer could it be? It could not be any clearer. He could not be any bolder. But you see, it also could not be more impossible for people who are dead in their trespasses and sins to believe it. Look down at the text. Because these same people are dead to truth. They are blind to it. And they are deaf to it. A mountain of evidence exists that says Jesus is the Christ. But there is an ocean full of unbelief in every human heart that says, I am the King. 
in my own kingdom. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 3 that unless one is born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is giving a pastoral answer. And church, we need to understand that Jesus has declared Himself to be the Christ. He has demonstrated Himself to be the Christ. Other witnesses like John the Baptist has testified that He is the Christ. It is unmistakable. And at the very same time, it is impossible to give your life to this Christ unless the Spirit of Christ comes in and regenerates the heart and gives a blind person the ability to see it and a deaf person the ability to hear it. And that's why, Jared and Kristen, we're going to be praying for you. We're going to be laboring for you. And the, the field is white for harvest over there, but they've got to see and they've got to hear and they've got to believe. And the only way they can do that is through the Spirit of God and the Word of God. You're going to bring the Word and the Spirit's going to come with you and God is going to save His people. So the pastoral answer begins with a rebuke. And church, we just have to wrestle and believe the words of Jesus. Look down at the text. He says, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Now the fact is, is that the, the reality is, is that humans are responsible to believe. And God is sovereign to bring them to belief. We don't understand it. We can't. Only a sovereign immutable, infinitely wise God can understand how those two things work, but we must not deny the reality of both. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. There's the rebuke to the Jewish leaders in particular. Then he gives a reminder to everyone in verse 27. He's already stated these realities in verses 1 through 18, but he says it again. He's building on this idea that he's a good shepherd. And he says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. The, the reminder is, is really should be some, some, some sense of comfort to the blind man, if he's in the crowd, who is now seeing, to the disciples who are most certainly there in and among the crowd, and others who have given their lives to Christ, Jesus is having a word for them and saying, listen, you may be opposed to me, you may not believe in me, you may reject me, you may want to kill me. But the fact is, is those who belong to me hear my voice. I call them by their very name. They follow me. I know them. They know me. And we are in an intimate relationship just as the greatest shepherd knows the entirety of his flock by name. That's the reminder to everyone in the group. And now let's zero in under the reassurance that he gives his sheep. And, and I want you to be reassured. If you're a Christian right now, I want you to be reassured about Jesus' love for you and His power to keep you to the very end. He says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. Just look at the first 
five words of verse 28. I give them eternal life. Listen, if you're a sheep in the flock of God, you're a sheep because it was a gift. I give them, I grant them eternal life. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't work for it. You don't meet a standard in order to get it. Listen, you're not among all of these sheep and you reach a certain level of sheepdom and now the shepherd says, okay, he can be a part of my flock. It doesn't happen that way. Nobody would ever reach that kind of standard. Jesus says, I come and I call my sheep by their names. They hear my voice and they come to me. I give them eternal life. It's a gift. And then he says, and they will never perish. They will never perish. There will never be a time that they experience spiritual death. Oh, will they die physically? Many will. But they will not die spiritually. They will not experience that second death that the scripture talks about where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the place where the worm never dies and everyone there suffers because of their lack of faith in the shepherd. No, they'll never go there. They'll never experience that because the kind of life that I give them is, get this, eternal life. God doesn't give Temporary life. He doesn't give conditional life. He doesn't give halfway life. He only gives one kind of life. What kind of life does He give? Eternal life. He says, no one will snatch them out of My hand. Okay, I want to pause right now and I want to to illustrate something hopefully that will be vivid for you. And so, um, Seth Atchison, will you come up, buddy? Come around up to the stairs. Come over this way. I want to illustrate something that is, that is very important in, in the truth that Jesus is teaching right here. Um, say Seth wants to believe. He wants to have eternal life. He, he wants to know God and serve God and live for God. And he wants to honor God. And if, if I'm the father, if, I, if I'm the good father, and I say to Seth, okay, Seth, hold on to me as tight as you can and as long as you can. All right? Seth, stand over here. What I want you to do is, uh, actually, I'm going to move something real quick. I would hate for uh, something not good to happen. Okay? Okay? What I want, church, is I want y'all to count how many seconds Seth can hold on to me. Okay? We'll start now. Come on, Seth. (laughs) 
All right, give Seth a hand. Give Seth a hand. All right, come back around. Come back around. Some of you are thinking right now the same thing I was feeling. Um, if, if you know what I'm saying. All right, all right. Come over here, Seth. All right. So you did a great job holding on. But what did you end up doing? Falling. You ended up falling. Okay. Did he give a really good effort? He gave a great effort. But if this is the abyss of condemnation, where'd he end up? In it. Now, instead of me saying to Seth, if, if I'm the good father and the good shepherd, Seth, hold on really tight. Instead of saying that, what if I said, I'm going to hold on to you, Seth? You want to let me hold on to you? All right. What if we just do this? Now, let me ask you, how long can Seth stay out of the abyss of condemnation? That's right. And, and Carolyn, this is the thing. Okay, God is not like me. He's a lot stronger than me, right? And this is the thing. He can stay out of the abyss of condemnation as long as I want Him to. And if I'm a good father who is the king of heaven and earth, who creates it and sustains it and redeems those who are mine, I will guarantee you one thing. Not one of my sheep will fall into that abyss. Not one. All right, let's give Seth a hand. Thank you, Seth. I use that illustration because if you look down at the text, Jesus in verse 28 and in verses 29 doesn't say, I give them eternal life, and if they hold on for dear life, they will never perish. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will do what? Snatch them out of my hand. You see, it's dependent on me, the good shepherd, Jesus is saying. And we're like, well, wait a minute. What does he say in verse 29? He says, my, my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So he asked the question, wait a minute. Is it your hand, or is it the Father's hand? And Jesus says, yes. Yes, it is. And then he explains it by saying, I and the Father are one. You see, I'm God. He's God. We are one in purpose. We are one in deity. We are one in in passion for the sheep's souls, and we are one in the power to keep them and to hold them. He's referring to the Trinity here, the Trinitarian love of God for the sheep whom He saves. Okay, so church, here we go right here. If you're, if you're wanting to write down the big idea, if you're wanting, to, if you're wanting to, to hold on to the big truth of this passage, it is this. Jesus is the Good Shepherd who eternally protects every single sheep His Father has given to Him. He is the good shepherd who eternally protects every single sheep his father has given to him. And so I want to give you three instructions, three applications right now. The first is this, count your blessings. If you're a Christian, count your blessings. 
If you know, love, and follow the voice of Jesus, count your blessings. Faith is a gift. You haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. You couldn't have it if it weren't given to you. So this morning, if we sing a song afterwards of praise to God, count your blessings that you believe in the shepherd, that you heard His voice, that He called you by name, and you're following Him today because if He didn't call your voice, if He didn't call you by name, if He didn't pick you up and bring you out, you would never be in the place you are today. Count your blessings. Second, cultivate confidence. Cultivate confidence in God. Exercise an unwavering confidence that Jesus is your shepherd who will never let you go. He's promised to protect you. He's promised to lead you. He's promised that you will never perish. Cultivate a confidence in His promises. So often we live in discouragement. We live in depression. We live in a, in a darkness of soul because we don't want to cultivate a confidence in Jesus will do what He says He's going to do. Third, and I think this is the biggest, consider the cost. Consider the cost. And, and I don't mean your cost. Consider what it took to secure your safety. Like, Do you think for a second that Jesus would leave heaven and come to earth to be born in an animal barn? To be raised by fallen and broken parents? Experience rejection at nearly every turn. Be betrayed and slandered, maligned, misjudged, lied about, blasphemed, beaten to a pulp, pierced, humiliated in nakedness, crucified, condemned by God, murdered by men, and buried in a tomb to accomplish for you conditional life. Temporary life. A life that is dependent on your ability to keep it. No way. The eternal Son of God did not leave heaven to experience hell so that you could be temporarily saved. That's a ridiculous notion that belittles the very purpose of the incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection. Listen, Jesus came and sacrificed His glorious life so that you could inherit eternal life and nothing less. So, I experienced... A crisis of faith in 2003. Jamie and I sold almost all that we had. And we put whatever stuff we had left in a 15-foot moving truck and went 2,000 miles to California. Another mistake, it's that way. Um, and when we got there, um, there was an onslaught of attack on me. Satan, the world, my flesh. And it centered on belief. Belief, just, just faith in God. And I would go to Hebrew grammar and hermeneutics and chapel services and I just had this overwhelming lack of trust in God and belief in God. It was the worst month and a half of my life. It was dark. But I remember sitting 
on a wooden bench outside of the chapel. All the while doing the things that I was supposed to do. Because one thing I learned is when you don't know what to do, then just do what you're supposed to do. So go to chapel, go to church, read your Bible, all of those kinds of things, right? I'm sitting on that wooden bench, and I remember thinking, God, I'm struggling. I don't even know if I believe, but this is what I know. If you are who you say you are, then you will do what you say you will do, and you will not let me fail. You will bring me back into the fold, and I will have the eternal life that you have already promised that I do. By God's grace, the clouds didn't part, and angels didn't sing hallelujah. I didn't hear a quote-unquote special word from God in the sense of an audible voice or anything like that. But in the midst of the means of grace, reading my Bible, praying, listening to that voice of God where you're silent before Him, listening to preaching, singing songs, God gave me a greater faith, a more robust trust in His person, His promises, and His provision than I've ever had in my life. And that was 15 years ago and I haven't looked back. I'm telling you, who Jesus is as a protective shepherd matters. It's not a mere point of theology. It's right down in the nitty gritty of where we live our lives every day. Trust Him. Believe in Him. He's a good protective shepherd. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Son Jesus who is a great shepherd who protects us in the midst of the worst situations and circumstances. I plead for His shepherding care to be manifest in the lives of His sheep at Redeemer Church. And if there is any who needs to know the shepherd's love today, Father, please compel them to talk to somebody about coming in to the flock of God. In Christ's name, Amen.